0: Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the
1: coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalized approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors.
0: Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au.
1: Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan, and I'm Dr. Kate Steele and today's episode is it's not
0: over till it's over part one where we talk through different case scenarios addressing problems in the post anaesthetic care unit.
1: As always in this podcast we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Something that Kate and
0: I have wanted to discuss for a while now are patient issues within the post anaesthetic care unit otherwise known as PACU. They're topics that crop up regularly enough in the part two exam that they're worth discussing, but they're also problems that we manage on a regular basis in our own practice.
1: Absolutely. And something we both agree on is that revising our approaches to common problems helps in ensuring that our decision making and management remains sharp and thorough.
0: We have a few different scenarios to discuss, but want to specifically highlight that these cases aren't plucked from known anaesthetic fibres, so listening to this won't limit your capacity for receiving practice fibres that were in the real exam, so to speak.
1: Okay, so let's get on with it. You are the anaesthetist on call when you're phoned by a PACU nurse about a 48-year-old woman who is post-laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Comorbidities include obesity with a BMI of 34 type 2 diabetes and hypertension. The nurse is concerned that the patient feels short of breath and states to you that she thinks she's not completely reversed. So, Kate, what's your approach to a situation like this? Uh, I'm
0: quite impressed with the... the clinical nouse of your uh, PACU nurse, <laughs> I think that's really good that they've already come up with a provisional diagnosis. Oh, gosh, that happens um, to
1: us all the time at no, my that's, hospital. that's
0: fantastic. So, look, firstly, if the patient is incompletely completely reverse and they generally require fairly prompt attention, I've had this happen before and patients can deteriorate quite quickly. Mm. So I need to work out whether I need to drop what I'm doing and run to the PACU or whether I have time to sort of take, you know, a couple of minutes and tidy up whatever I'm doing with my current patient. Mm. That said, in my experience, the PACU nurses are fairly happy to press the emergency buzzer if they're actually really worried. So generally that's not a problem where I work. I'd ask the nurse what the patient's oxygen saturations are, whether the patient's on supplemental oxygen, her respiratory rate, blood pressure and heart rate. If the oxygenation is an issue or the nurse is worried, I'd give a phone order to increase the supplemental oxygen and get along to pack you nice and quickly.
1: Fair enough. Now, the patient's oxygen saturation is 96% on 6 litres of oxygen via Hudson mask. Her respiratory rate is 18, blood pressure is 145 on 85, and heart rate is 86 beats per minute.
0: Look, I'm slightly concerned at the saturations of 96% on 6 litres. There's definitely a decent AA gradient, which mm. is not unexpected sometimes after surgery. But I tell the nurse to increase the oxygen to 8-10 to litres of flow and that I'm on my way.
1: Now, what's going through your mind as you walk to the PACU? So,
0: a couple of things. So, firstly, although the nurse believes the patient's incompletely reversed, I need to ascertain whether this is the case or whether there's another cause for her shortness of breath. So, in my mind, I'm doing a little bit of a, a differential diagnosis in my head about the causes of post operative shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm thinking about how I can diagnose and manage potential incomplete reversal. And thirdly, I'd grab some reversal on the way, ideally some sugamidex if available. Uh, And if the patient has had rocuronium or vecuronium, if not, I would take some neostigmine and glycopyrrolate.
1: Okay, so what are some of the differential diagnoses for postoperative shortness of breath that you're considering? So,
0: obviously, there are several causes of shortness of breath in this scenario. Given she's a little bit hypoxic, I'd be thinking through the causes of hypoxia, which you can do either using the primary exam method Mm. of the kind of physiological courses. So, you could look at inspired oxygen issues, VQ mismatch, shunt, um, or you could look through it in an anatomical way. And then you could also include the um, cardiovascular system in this as well. Often in anesthesia, though, as we get more senior we frequency gamble. Yeah. So in this situation, I'm thinking the incomplete reversal is definitely a possibility, particularly since dosing and reversal in obese patients can be challenging. And I don't think we, we've we discussed this in a previous episode, but we don't really monitor neuromuscular blockade nearly as much as we should. Yeah. And and of course, it's not just the incomplete reversal could be either or a combination of hypoventilation and there could be an element of laryngospasm there as well. Mm. It could be inadequate analgesia, particularly after abdominal surgery, uh, pneumoperitoneum leading to splinting and hypoventilation. But conversely, too much analgesia could lead to drowsiness and hypoventilation and a feeling of shortness of breath. It's uncommon, but it could, could occur. Patient anxiety is a possibility, although it is a diagnosis of exclusion in the beginning. And then other possibilities I'd be thinking about is bronchospasm, particularly in an asthmatic or a patient who is a smoker. I'd be thinking about other intrapulmonary issues such as pulmonary edema, uh, such as particularly negative pressure pulmonary edema, if the patient was biting or fighting the tube during extubation, or potentially PE it's uncommon, but um, it, they can occur quickly. Pneumothorax is in there, low, you know, low risk. But once again, the patient has been intubated and yeah. possibly has had high airway pressures during the case, and also a foreign body, maybe like a tooth. This is probably more common after ENT surgery. Yeah. And you should be thinking about things like throat packs or nasal packing. Mm. I have had a nasal, a nasal sort of pack that actually went out the back of someone's nose and ended Ooh. up in their throat, and it looked like a coroner's clot, but it was a coroner's nasal pack. So oh. there are things to keep in mind as well in uncommon situations and and dentures is the other one you probably need to not in this patient Mm. but yeah Mm. need to watch out for
1: okay so you've arrived in the pacu and you see a patient that's propped upright in bed but still very drowsy as she nods off she jerks herself awake and reaches for the hudson mask her movements are a little jerky uncoordinated and slow the nurse instructs her to take a few deep breaths and she does so but complains that she can't breathe deeply So
0: yeah, this is looking more convincingly like an incomplete reversal, but I'm going to have a quick examine and have a look at the anaesthetic
1: record just to double check. And what are you looking for when you examine? So really looking from
0: the end of the bed, quick scan of the patient, this takes about five seconds, looking for colour, respiratory distress and effort and her observations. That can all be taken pretty quickly. When I'm talking about respiratory effort, I'm looking for the quality of her inspiration to see Mm. whether her breasts look shallow or more deep and a really rapid and focused examination, quick listen to the lungs, listen to the heart and also quick neurological examination, getting a patient to squeeze my hands and raise her head off the bed and then just double check the anaesthetic record to see what she's had, although I should probably know that given I just brought this patient out
1: well no actually you're contacted by the nurse you're not necessarily the owner of the patient there you go okay all right fair enough so looking at the anesthetic record you see the patient was asleep for about 90 minutes she received 100 milligrams of rocuronium on induction with one subsequent dose of 20 milligrams throughout the case Reversal was with 2.5 milligrams of neostigmine and 0.4 milligrams of glycopyrrolate, and was administered about two minutes before extubation. Other relevant drugs administered include seven milligrams of oxycodone throughout, a lignocaine infusion, and a magnesium infusion. Antiemetics administered include dexamethasone 4 milligrams and granisetron 1 milligram. There is no record as to whether a nerve stimulator was used.
0: Yeah, so this is looking more and more like an incomplete reversal and the things that make me suspicious are that she's had a large intubating dose of rocuronium, she had repeated dosing. The dose of reversal was technically underdosing even if the patient was of a normal BMI and it wasn't given with enough time to actually work. Magnesium also potentiates the duration of action of the neuromuscular blockers and the dose of opioid seems appropriate enough to make sure the patient is well analgesed but not too much that it's complicating the picture. So how are you going to proceed from here? So I would preferentially give a dose of Sugamidex at 2 milligrams per kilo. And why is that? Uh, I want it to work quickly. Neostigmine and glycopyrrolate can take up to 10 minutes to work and the patient's obviously uncomfortable in a bit of distress and becoming hypoxic and in my experience they can deteriorate quite rapidly. Would you check her terrain of count? Uh, probably not in this situation. So testing with a nerve stimulator is quite painful in an awake patient. Um, and as well as this, it, it's Sugamidex is a reasonably safe drug to give on spec when I have mm. clinical suspicion.
1: Mm, fair enough. So before we move on, are there factors that you're aware of that increase a patient's risk of residual neuromuscular blockade?
0: They certainly are, and I'd like to split them into patient factors, surgical factors, and anesthetic factors. So patient factors include, obviously, neuromuscular disorder, patients with liver or renal failure where they can't clear the drugs properly, patients with pseudocolonesterase deficiency, specifically for succinylcholine and vivicurium, and hypothermia. Surgical factors include, obviously, short surgery, but medium or long-acting neuromuscular blockade uh, drugs have been given, and pressure from a surgical colleague to maintain a rapid and high turnover list. And anaesthetic factors include too much neuromuscular blocking drug given or too long acting a drug given, for example, pancuronium, which hopefully hasn't occurred in this situation. Drug error could be the wrong dose of reversal given or the wrong drug given. Inadequate time lapse between the neuromuscular blockade and the reversal. And drug interaction. So drugs do potentiate the neuromuscular blockers, for example, gentamicin or magnesium.
1: So what's the point of even reversing this patient? After all, won't the drug just work its way out of her system with time?
0: Uh, It would, but um, firstly, this patient's obviously symptomatic and in discomfort, and I don't want to prolong that, but more importantly, there are a lot of problems that are preventable with adequate neuromuscular reversal. So, uh, you know, obviously we've talked about hypoxia, but you can also get passive regurgitation of gastric contents as a result of laryngeal and pharyngeal muscle dysfunction, Interference with hypoxic ventilatory control, the hypoxic ventilatory response is reduced by about 30% in awake volunteers with a train of four ratio of only 0.7. And we think this arises because of a reversible depression in the carotid body chemoreceptor activity during hypoxia and can potentiate post-operative brain injury Mm. and also post-operative pulmonary complications such as atelectasis and pneumonia.
1: So looking at this case critically, are there things that could have been done better, do you think?
0: sure are. So things that could have been changed to improve the outcome of this case are using intraoperative neuromuscular monitoring and checking that adequate reversal has been achieved before extubation. And in this patient, I would give a more appropriate dose of neostigmine and glycopyrrolate and give it at least 10 minutes prior to extubation. I'd probably have given five milligrams of neostigmine instead of two and a half milligrams. And I really have a low threshold in patients to get a large dose of, you know, cumulative dose of neuromuscular blockum to give a dose of
1: subgammon Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let's take a deep breath and let's dive into the next scenario. Now, Kate, are you ready? I am, but I should be asking you, are you ready?
0: (laughs) Bring it on. Okay, so look, again, you're the consultant anaesthetist on call and decide to do a quick walk around the PACU to troubleshoot any small problems and try to expedite getting patients to the post operative wards. You reach a nurse that tells you her patient, a 67 year old gentleman who has had a reverse total shoulder replacement, isn't waking up. He has well controlled hypertension and mild COPD, moderate obstructive sleep apnea, and is slightly overweight with a BMI of 28. The case was long, three and a half hours of operating time, and technically difficult. He had a tiva anaesthetic and was given 10mg of morphine about 20 minutes before changing his endotracheal tube to a laryngeal mask airway. It is well seated and functioning properly. He is breathing spontaneously at 14 breaths per minute with saturations of 100% on 6 litres of oxygen via a T-piece. He is hemodynamically stable with a BP of 145 on 75 and a heart rate of 62. It is now 30 minutes since he was delivered to PACU and is not rousable. So Kate, what is your approach to a problem like this?
1: So I have quite a structured approach to patients not waking up because there are so many potential different causes and frankly, I don't want to miss anything. And even though this patient seems stable despite not waking up, there could still be some sort of serious and potentially life-threatening pathology that's causing this clinical picture. So I don't want to delay or prolong my assessment.
0: Yeah. So you need to be thorough, but slick.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, the approach that I like to use is the one that's illustrated in the BJA educational article from last year, and it's called Delayed Recovery of Consciousness After General Anesthesia. And you can find the link in our episode notes. So first, I do a complete check of airway, breathing, and circulation. Now, the patient has laryngeal mask airway in situ that is working well. He's breathing independently at an appropriate rate and a rhythm, so airway and breathing seem fine at this point. Circulation also appears stable without the need for vasopressors, but I'd also want to confirm the patient's usual blood pressure. At this point, I also want to repeat a full set of OBS, and if he doesn't have capnography in situ, I'd attach some.
0: Okay, so all the ob's unchanged from when you arrived and the nurse attaches a capnograph that shows an end tidal CO2 of 42 millimetres of mercury.
1: Okay, so now I'm going to do a full disability assessment on this patient. Now this will include a Glasgow Coma Score assessment, checking the patient's pupillary light response, their temperature and performing an arterial blood gas. So what are you
0: specifically looking for on the blood gas?
1: So specifically potential causes for the delayed waking. So for example, high blood PaCO2 may result in an obtunded patient, as could a patient that's... He- hypoglycemic, particularly if they have diabetes mellitus. But I'm also looking for signs that could point me in the direction of the diagnosis, as well as easily correctable problems like checking electrolytes and serum lactate. And lastly, I want to confirm that the patient's current independent ventilation is appropriate by ensuring good oxygenation and that there's no evidence of respiratory acidosis or alkalosis.
0: Okay, so after doing this, we find that the BSL is normal at 7.2, the pH, serum, lactate and electrolytes are all within normal limits, and it appears that the patient's own ventilation is appropriate. So what's going through your mind at this point?
1: Yeah, so the cause of this man's failure to wake is still not particularly clear. So in my mind, I'm running through my list of differential diagnoses and thinking of how I'm going to either confirm or exclude them.
0: So what are some of the possible differential diagnoses for failure to wake?
1: Okay, so starting with metabolic causes, we have hyper- or hypoglycemia, hypo- or hypernatremia, and hypothermia. Moving to pharmacological causes, we have opioids, incomplete neuromuscular reversal, intravenous anesthetic agents, specifically relating to the context-sensitive halftime and prolonged infusions, volatile anaesthetic agents, but this is usually in the setting of decreased alveolar ventilation and happens more often in obese patients, serotonin syndrome, central anticholinergic syndrome, brainstem anaesthesia or high spinal anaesthesia. And then lastly, we have patient causes, and these are much more rare. So things like seizures, including non-convulsive status epilepticus, mixed edema coma, functional coma, brainstem stroke, stroke, cerebral edema, or a spinal cord injury. Okay, so we've
0: assessed airway, breathing, circulation and done a disability assessment. And at this stage, the cause for the
1: delayed emergence isn't clear. Where do you go from here? So now I want to do a quick assessment of the patient's anaesthetic record. So he's not someone that I cared for intraoperatively, so I need to find out more information about what has actually happened up to this point. If I can't find anything significant in the patient's record or history, then I may have to look at a potential surgical cause or another new medical pathology.
0: And what are you looking for when you check the anaesthetic record?
1: Look, several things. So I want to check the patient's preoperative assessment because I want to know whether he's at risk for delayed emergence. I want to check what drugs were given and their timings. Now, in this case, we know the patient had a dose of 10 milligrams of morphine just prior to changing the endotracheal tube to a laryngeal mask airway, and that could be contributing to his condition. But there could still be other agents we're not aware of that could be muddying the waters. So I also want to check the status of his neuromuscular blockade dosing and whether appropriate reversal was given.
0: So you mentioned risk factors for delayed emergence. What are these risk factors?
1: Okay, so starting with patient factors, extremes of age, so specifically the elderly and the frail, as well as infants, genetic variation, and this specifically relates to genetic polymorphisms of the cytochrome P450 enzyme systems, Body habitus, where obese patients are at greater risk because of total body weight-based dosing of drugs rather than lean body weight-based dosing. But as well as this, there is the suggestion that underweight patients may also be at risk, but this is relatively unsubstantiated. Comorbidities as well. Then we have anaesthetic factors, and there's really only one, and that's long duration of anaesthesia. And lastly, we have surgical factors. So central nervous system surgery, where we see delayed awakening, but also an increase in the risk of stroke cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass, so factors contributing to delayed awakening include hypothermia, hemorrhagic stroke in the setting of anticoagulation, cerebral ischemia from microemboli, and the change from pulsatile to linear flow of blood through the brain whilst on bypass. Next, we have operations where a steep Trendelenburg position is used, like for robotic prostatectomy, and the issue here is cerebral edema. And lastly, we have operations where hypotonic irrigation fluids can potentially enter the systemic circulation, for example, terp, uh, where delayed awakening can occur as a result of cerebral edema and electrolyte disturbances coupled with the direct central inhibitory action of glycine.
0: So let's go back to the risk factors relating to comorbidities. Can you explain these to me?
1: Yeah, of course. So I classify these based on system. Now, starting with the respiratory system, we have conditions causing a reduced central respiratory drive, and these are obesity hypoventilation syndrome, COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, and some intracranial pathology. Next, we have neuromuscular disorders affecting respiration, and these include things like myasthenia gravis, motor neuron disease gillian barre syndrome and muscular dystrophy and next we have pulmonary pathology resulting in VQ mismatch. Now next we go into the hepatic system where risk factors include acute hepatic failure and chronic hepatic failure. Next we have the renal system where we have the following risks acute renal failure and chronic renal failure and lastly the endocrine system where the only risk factor is hypothyroidism.
0: So could risk factors potentially be contributing to delayed
1: emergence in this patient? Look, potentially, yes. We know that his surgery was prolonged and he also has both COPD and obstructive sleep apnea. Okay, so
0: assessment of the patient's anaesthetic record shows a relatively straightforward induction. He received several doses of rocuronium throughout the case and was reversed with neostigmine 2.5mg and glycopyrrolate 0.4mg after the ETT was changed, but there is no mention of neuromuscular monitoring. Maintenance of anesthesia was with propofol Tiva with TCI of 4 for most of the case. Analgesia was with remifentanil and was seized one minute prior to the patient's PACU transfer, and other than the 10mg of morphine, no other analgesics were administered. The patient received dexamethasone and granisetron for PONV prophylaxis. Of note, the anaesthetist recorded on the record that the surgeon requested lower blood pressure throughout the procedure to reduce surgical site bleeding. While in the beach chair position, the patient's blood pressure fluctuated between 80 and 90 systolic on the arterial line trace. What are your thoughts at this point?
1: Well, there are a few things going through my mind at this stage. First, in an overweight patient with repeated rocuronium dosing and no neuromuscular monitoring and a reversal with what is technically an underdose of neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, I want to check this patient's reversal status. Secondly, I'm going to consider giving a small dose of naloxone because in this patient, a 10 milligram morphine bolus may actually be significantly contributing to sedation. Mm -hmm. This patient had a prolonged TIVA anesthetic and may still have significant circulating propofol levels, so I'm keeping that in the back of my mind as well. And lastly, this patient has been in a specific surgical position with hypotension that increases the risk of ischemic stroke, so I'm also keeping that in the back of my mind.
0: Okay, so you check the patient's train of four ratio and see that it is 0.7. The PACU nurse administers a two milligram per kilo dose of sugamidex, which results in a train of four of one, but no other change to the patient's status. Two doses of naloxone 80 mics result in a change in the respiratory rate from 14 to 16 breaths per minute, but otherwise no change. Where do you go from here?
1: So at this stage, I'm suspicious that there may be a more rare but serious pathology that's contributing to the patient's condition. I'm going to organise an urgent head CT and I'll re-intubate the patient prior to transfer to the scanner. I'm also going to liaise with the surgeon and organise for them to review the patient. I'm going to contact the anaesthetist who cared for the patient initially to notify them of what's happened and to get their opinion. And lastly, I'm going to contact the intensive care unit to organise for emergency admission after the CT scan.
0: So looking back at this case critically, is there anything that could have been done better?
1: Look, there are certainly aspects of the case that I would have done differently, and these include things like giving multimodal analgesia or a block rather than relying solely on opioids. And I also would have given a smaller dose of opioid in this patient and titrated the analgesia as he emerged. With repeated rocuronium dosing, I would have checked the TOF ratio both before and after changing the endotracheal tube to a laryngeal mask airway and made sure that the patient was well reversed before transfer to the PACU. In this patient as well, he is an older gentleman with hypertension. I wouldn't be as comfortable with the degree of intraoperative hypotension provided while he was in the beach chair position. I would have made sure that my arterial line transducer was at the level of the tragus so that my blood pressure measurements accurately reflected the pressure at the level of the circle of Willis. And lastly, I'd probably also consider using cerebral oximetry in this patient.
0: Yeah, look, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of evidence, but I feel quite strongly no, about um, arterial blood pressure monitoring appropriately in the beach chair position. It mm. might even be a topic for a future podcast on your beach chair. But, Maybe. Um, but yeah, I certainly at a minimum try to get it to the shoulder and uh, look at their baseline blood pressure and try not to deviate, you know, probably more than about 20 millimetres of mercury. Absolutely. From their starting meme so yes look the only other thing to address about this case is that the patient does have several risk factors for delayed awakening Mm. Um, it would be easy just to say he's at risk and he'll wake up eventually and he possibly will i guess at this point we're an hour into his journey and pack you so having that index of suspicion and running tests that could confirm or exclude potentially catastrophic adverse events may improve patient morbidity and mortality in the long term and i i think kind of the things that are easy you know you don't want to miss hyperglycemia and that's so easy to to test for yeah
1: absolutely and even going through the process of getting a head CT I mean it's a pain in the butt taking a patient down to the scanner but geez, it's catastrophic if you miss something big like a stroke. So just, you know, though it's labour intense and kind of annoying when you've got other things on the go, sometimes it's just worth doing it. And look, if the patient wakes up and they're fine, great. But if they don't, at least you've done everything you possibly can to work mm. out what's going on.
0: I think once you've excluded all the major causes, then particularly in this surgical scenario, you yeah. do need to have a look at their head. And look, you do see perioperative strokes time you know from time to time. Mm. So I've just done a little time check and it looks like we're going to have to pause because um, we've kind of gone through pretty much a full episode <laughs> and we still have two more cases to discuss so be sure to continue listening with it's not over till it's over part two it's been an interesting collection of cases that we've discussed this week on deep breaths as always if you have any questions comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi you can email us on deep gmail.com.
1: If you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please let us know. And following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify makes finding new episodes easier, so be sure to click that button. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.